Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Knowing that believers and non-believers alike would hear his letter read, Paul began by focusing on how and why Gentiles or non-Jews lived their lives entirely separate from the one true God. It wasn't that they didn't know better. As creator of the universe, God revealed himself to all mankind through what he had made. Additionally, from the very beginning of history, he spoke to certain people on earth who were able to pass on to others a more detailed knowledge of him and how he is to be worshipped. However, preferring to live a life of wickedness, the Gentiles chose to suppress or deny the truths that God had revealed. They rejected even the natural order that God had set in place so that they might engage in all kinds of sin and immorality. They were certainly free to do that, Because from the moment of creation, mankind has been free to choose whether they obey God or not. But as Paul warned, the choices we make do have consequences, and the progressive wickedness of those consequences he described in chapter 1 was shocking, but all too familiar even today. Now, as Paul begins chapter 2 of Romans, he turns his attention to another group of people who were also likely to hear his epistle, Jews who had not yet accepted Jesus as the only way to be saved. Jewish people felt that because they had the law of Moses, they were in a privileged position. They believed that they were especially favored by God and would not be judged by him as other people would. They genuinely thought that they didn't need the grace and mercy of God in the same way the Gentiles did. So they were no doubt in full agreement with Paul's arguments in the first chapter and his declaration that the Gentiles were condemned by God. Paul himself had come from one of the strictest Jewish groups before coming to Christ, and he was well acquainted with this mindset and the blindness that often came along with it. He knew that though they had the law, the Jewish people were not obeying it faultlessly, and that they too needed the grace of God that could only come through Christ. But he also recognized that they needed to understand those things about themselves. And that is what he sets out to do in chapter 2. Let's look closely at what Paul wanted them to understand as we begin Romans 2 verse 1. But first, I want you to see that he changes pronouns here. In chapter 1, he used the words they and them to describe the Gentiles. But here, he uses the word you. He's getting more direct and personal with his audience, almost as if he's reading their minds and hearts. He warned, you therefore have no excuse, you who passed judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do 
Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Jewish people had the law of Moses. They knew what God had commanded, and so in that way they were without excuse. However, although the law could tell a person how to behave, it had no power to help them obey the things God had commanded. So though they knew God's righteous standard, they were unable to live up to it in their own strength. As a Pharisee, Paul had known what it was like to be self-righteous as he tried to live according to the law of Moses, and he also knew what it was like to fall short. He wanted the Jewish people living in Rome to stop seeing themselves as privileged without the need of a saviour. He wanted them to realise that they, who were so used to passing judgment on other people, were actually condemning themselves because in many of the same ways, they too broke the law of God. They had no problem believing that God's judgment against sin was justified because they knew it was based on the truth revealed in his word. So they had no issue with him judging the Gentiles, yet they somehow expected different treatment from him when they sinned, simply because they were Jews. They thought that he would go easier on them because they were his chosen people, the circumcised descendants of Abraham. Paul wanted them to understand that in God's eyes they were just as guilty as the Gentiles they had such contempt for, and that they would be judged for breaking God's law just as the Gentiles would. In the past, God had restrained his anger and didn't punish Israel as severely as they deserved for their rebellions and disobediences. In this, he had shown them kindness, tolerance and patience, not because he approved of their sin, but because he wanted them to realize their need to repent. God had wanted them to grasp their need for a saviour. But instead, his kindness towards Israel created an arrogant stubbornness in their hearts. And their continual refusal to repent meant that God's wrath for their sin remained on them and was being stored up or accumulated for a future time. As Paul knew, the full extent of that wrath would yet be revealed at the time of God's final judgment. For at that time, Paul says in verse 6, God will give to each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile but glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favouritism. As we consider this section of text, we must be very careful to understand it correctly. Paul states that when God's righteous judgment is revealed, he will give to each person according to what they have done. 
The gospel tells us that we are made right with God by faith, not by works, and that we have peace with him because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. So how then can God give to people according to what they have done? How can both of these things be true? To understand, we must begin by looking at what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 29. When a crowd following him asked Christ, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered and said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Did you notice how Christ changed their plural works to be only one work that God required? And that work is to believe in Jesus Christ whom the Father has sent. That's where new life begins, with belief in Jesus. But belief is not just mental agreement. Jesus also stated in John chapter 14 verse 15 that if we love him, we will obey his commands. Our lives will demonstrate what our hearts believe. As the famous preacher Martin Luther once said, we are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. In other words, genuine faith will always lead to the obedience of good works, because our faith and our love for Christ is proved or made obvious by what we do. That is how God will give to each person according to what they have done, or according to what the actions of their lives indicate about their belief. To those who believe in Christ, who love Jesus, and who live to bring glory to him in all that they do, to them the Father will surely give honor and eternal life in his presence. However, for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and who follow evil, who put themselves and their desires at the center of their lives instead of Christ, for them there will be wrath and anger. God will surely judge sin irrespective of a person's national heritage, their education, social standing or any other characteristic you might put forth. The truth of the matter is God does not show favoritism. Jew and Gentile alike need a saviour to reconcile them with God the Father and to provide the kind of power needed to live a life of obedience to the Lord. Paul explains this truth in more detail beginning in verse 12. He says, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they're a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. In this rather difficult section, Paul looks at the world as having two different groups of people in it. There were the Jews who had the written law of God 
that they could all read and were obliged to follow. And then there were the Gentiles who, although they didn't have the written law, had the requirements of that law written on their hearts because they all had a God-given conscience. The truth is that both groups would face God's judgment when they sin. Paul declared in verse 12 that all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. In other words, the Gentiles who had not received God's written commands were destined to perish because of their sin as they ignored their consciences. But that didn't let the Jews off the hook as far as God's judgment was concerned. They may have had God's written law, but they had never fully kept it. And as James reminds us in James chapter 2 verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. No matter how well-intentioned, partial obedience is not obedience. And so the Jew was in no better position than the Gentile, as having the law was no guarantee of God's favourable judgment. This is really an important truth that we all must grasp. No one will be deemed righteous in God's sight because they hear the word of God read at the weekend. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. Rather, you and I have to act on what God's word says. We are to be doers of the word and not just hearers, for it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous in God's sight, according to verse 13. The word of God reveals that Jesus Christ is the only way by which mankind can be saved. It is only those who trust in Christ's blood shed for them on the cross who are reconciled to the Father and made right with him. But those who trust in Jesus must also obey his word. Now, does this mean that those who are far from God are incapable of ever doing good things? No. In fact, Paul goes on to point out in verse 14 and 15 that God has written certain principles upon the heart of mankind and that we are all able to do good if we listen to our consciences. But truth be told, we do not do that consistently. And doing the occasional good thing is not enough to save us. For remember, if we fall at just one point in our obedience, according to the law, we are no longer faultless before God. We've become lawbreakers and are in the very same category as someone who has broken every command God has given. A friend of mine told me that this came home to her the day that she appeared in court on a traffic offence and found herself in the same waiting room with all other kinds of offenders, drunks, thieves, white-collared criminals. Their individual circumstances made no difference. They were all there together because in the eyes of the law, they were all lawbreakers. 
We all like to think that we aren't as bad as other people, but even an outwardly moral life and a good reputation won't be enough to save us in the end. For Paul promises that ultimately God will judge men's secrets when we stand before him. A person's secrets include their inner thoughts, their hidden motives, and every act concealed or hidden from others. On that final day, all of these things will be judged through Jesus Christ. He is the only one with the right and the authority to deal with us. He's the only one who truly knows the heart of each person, and he's the only one who can apply judgment truthfully, righteously, and lovingly. Paul's words get a little stronger in verse 17, anticipating the resistance some of his listeners might be feeling. He says, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The name Jew was an honored and sacred name proudly worn by Abraham's descendants, who had come through the line of his son Isaac. Paul speaks to those who would identify themselves by this name, who believed that they were one of God's people. And he began to list some of the things that they were most proud of. They relied on the law and bragged about their relationship to God, even though they didn't obey his commands. They thought that they knew his will and that just having the law that God had given to Moses made them somehow superior to all other men. In all their pride and conceit, they were convinced that as Jews, they were a guide for the spiritually blind Gentiles. As keepers of God's light, in a spiritual sense, they were the ones to hold out the radiance of God in a dark place. They believed others to be foolish and childish in their notions and were certain because of the knowledge and truth of God that the law contained, others should be looking to them as being teachers of righteousness. Actually, that view was not necessarily inaccurate. The Gentiles were spiritually blind, ignorant children walking in darkness, in desperate need of the knowledge of God. However, the Jews were in no better position themselves, for in truth they were hypocrites. They were not living according to the revelation of God that had been given to them. 
Though they preached against theft, adultery, and the worship of idols, they were guilty of all of those things in some way. Though they bragged about the Lord, they dishonored God by breaking it. And though Jews were careful to treat each other honorably, the way they acted towards others brought God's name into disrepute. In fact, a Roman historian said that Although among themselves they were incredibly honest and their compassion was amazing, to other people they just showed hatred. It was said that in the city of Alexandria, for example, the Jews had taken an oath to never show kindness to a Gentile. If a Gentile was lost and asked directions, none would be given. If they were looking for a well so that they could have a drink, the only way a Jew would lead a person there was if they were circumcised. The Jews shut themselves into a rigid, closed community and their contempt for all those outside not only made them very unpopular, but it caused the Gentiles to curse the very God whose names the Jews, whose name the Jews were supposed to be honoring. Paul then brings up one of the most important rites contained in the law the rite of circumcision. This was the mark that identified God's chosen people and set them apart from others. Every advantage of being a Jew flowed from this sign of the covenant, and so the Jews were very zealous about obeying this particular instruction in the law. Interestingly, some of their rabbis taught that no man who was circumcised would ever see hell, and many believed that even if they ignored the rest of the law, they would still be saved because they were circumcised. As Paul brings the chapter to a close, he warns them of the dangers of thinking that way, and he begins in verse 25 to reveal the true meaning of the act of circumcision. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. This part of Paul's message must have been especially shocking to them, for he plainly states that circumcision was of no value to them if they weren't obeying the other parts of God's law. Right standing before the Lord doesn't come from merely performing an outward ritual, even if it's a very significant one that he has given. It comes rather from having him as the Lord of your life. And by that criteria, some Gentiles were better Jews than Abraham's own biological descendants were. Paul pressed the point home even more, revealing that a man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from men, but from God.
Paul wanted them to understand that circumcision alone was not enough to save them. God was really interested in their hearts. Had the Holy Spirit cut away the hardness of sin and created a new heart within them? Were they truly open and yielded to him? You see, for the Jews, circumcision was meant to indicate that a certain kind of relationship with God was being established, that they had been brought into the covenant relationship that God made with Abraham and all the blessings that came along with it. However, a certain kind of ongoing life was supposed to follow from that, a life of worship, obedience and responsiveness to the Lord. That was where the Jews had missed the plot. They stopped at the introduction and got all proud about their privileged standing and didn't get to the rest of the story. Paul's point to his Jewish readers was that they weren't living up to what they were boasting about. They were hypocrites. I really want us to personalize this truth and to see it in the context of our own lives today because most who are listening to this right now aren't Jewish but would rather consider themselves to be Christians. Have we somehow fallen into the same mistaken way of thinking that the Jews had? Jesus said that if we love him, we will obey what he has commanded. He also said that once we've come to faith in him, we are to be baptized as one of the first outward acts of our obedience to him. Baptism also indicates the beginning of what should be an ongoing relationship with God, and we too are in danger of losing the plot if we stop there, if we stop with just baptism and don't actually live the life of faithful obedience that reveals true faith. As any good teacher, Paul could anticipate the objections of his readers, what they would have thought about what they had just been taught. And so he begins chapter 3 by addressing those objections head on. Let's read them before we go back and look at each of them. Each objection is phrased as a question a reader might ask. So see if you can pick up on them. Paul writes, what advantage then is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? Much, in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if someone did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say, that God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. Paul acknowledged some might think he was teaching that there was no advantage to being a Jew. 
Paul states that that really isn't the case. The Jews had the incredible advantage of being entrusted with the commandments of God. This gave them a very special position in God's sight, but it was a position of responsibility, not just privilege. The next objection is in verse 3. What would happen if some of the Jews did not have faith? Would their unfaithfulness lead to God being unfaithful to his promises to them? No. Paul was clear, saying that God's promises to the Jews would not be broken. He would remain faithful to what he had promised. But they would not escape accountability as his representatives on earth. The very fact that he would judge wrongdoing, whether the person was a Jew or a Gentile, really proved God's justice and his fairness. Though he might be expected to overlook the sins of his special people, he does not. For God doesn't show favoritism. He treats all people equally. A truly argumentative person might then suggest the question in verse 5, wouldn't it be a good thing if their sin or their unrighteousness brought out God's righteousness more clearly? In other words, surely someone couldn't be condemned for giving God the chance to prove his grace and his lack of prejudice. In verse 6, it seems that Paul is a bit exasperated at the idea of this ridiculous argument. For God to be just, he must judge sin fairly. And in verses 7 and 8, Paul rejects the idea that it's okay for us to do evil in order for God's grace to be seen. And he rejects the accusation that he was teaching such a thing. It is, he says, truly worthy of condemnation. You know, these things must have been hard and challenging words for his listeners to hear. But Paul's hope was that coming face to face with their great need and their sinfulness would push them toward Christ and repentance as their only hope of salvation. It was his great desire for them and also mine for you. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.